Thank you, Heavenly Father. Be glorified in our midst today, we pray. As we confess, hallowed be your name. You are glorified and magnificent in our eyes when we think of answered prayers this morning that we celebrated in our prayer service. We think about, Lord, the fact that we're holding your Bible in our hands, the declared special revelation of our God, there tangibly evident in our language before us today. You are glorified in the presence of your word in our possession. You're even more glorified in the presence of your word written on the tables of hearts here. Souls that have laid down themselves, taken up their cross and followed you. Your provision and salvation, God, whom we owe our eternal future. You are glorified. You are our vision. You are the Lord of our life. I pray as you are, so that you would be our vision moving forward. Your word says, Lord, in the cry of your servant David, if his prayer would be answered, that you would light up his eyes. Teach us what that means as we study your scripture today. And as we learn, let our eyes be lit up. Let our spiritual eyes be opened. Let the eyes of our understanding, Lord, be awakened, excited, visionary, Beholding the beauty, the grace, the glory of our God. Exploring the reaches of the revelation of yourself in your word. Celebrating them together, eager to share. Quicken, Lord Jesus, the consciousness, the affections, the commitment, the servant heart. Lord, the power of your people, the influence of your kingdom. The word of your spirit on the lips and tongues of everyone who confesses your name in this room. And Father, if there's anyone here who fellowships with us, to whom you are still a stranger, I pray that they would meet you face to face, that you would quicken their heart in such a way that it would be regeneration for them this morning, a born-again relationship with you, Lord, a resurrection from the death of sin. Light up the eyes of the unbeliever. If not, hear them through our testimony to others so that we might, Lord Jesus, fellowship with more on our way to celebrating perfectly in glory the magnificent works of our glorious God before the throne of grace forever. Lord, condition us for that great calling today as we strive to be sanctified according to the precepts of your word. May you be glorified in the giving of your word today. May you be celebrated when it takes root. May the fruit, Lord, be honoring to you. And may it, Lord, produce effectual change in the hearts and lives of believers as we leave this place later. In the name of Jesus Christ, our powerful conquering Lord. Amen. Words fall short of describing the privilege it is to share in the Word of God with you this morning. In the high calling and sober duty it is to declare it from the pulpit and to try to understand its precepts. I pray the Holy Spirit helps us do this together as we study Psalm 13. I invite you to move in your Bible to the center and find with me, if you would, Psalm 13. And in a moment, we'll read it together. Just six verses. But as all verses of Scripture, indefinitely rich, just inestimably powerful in what they contain. And my prayer is that the value of these words would be discovered in our minds and written on our hearts as a result of our study today in Psalm 13. The title of this message is, Lift Up, I'm sorry, Light Up My Eyes. Light Up My Eyes. You'll notice that phrase in verse 3 in the center of the psalm and I think is central to the theme of the psalm itself. If you found your place there, read with me if you would to begin our message today, Psalm chapter 13. Verses 1 to 6. David opens by this cry. Verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. 
lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Those six short verses comprise this beautiful psalm. My note of context before we begin to explore it a little more verse by verse, you can feel how dramatically impacting in its brevity and in its contrast this psalm is. In its brevity, obviously, it's just six short verses, which only emphasizes the contrast. Verse 1 to verse 6. Another way to say or highlight this is, how can the state of the heart and soul of a believer crying out in distress move from such fear and such anguish to confidence in just six short verses, in just a couple short minutes? How can God's servant David go from crying out such a disturbing phrase at the beginning, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? To the final phrase, I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Over and above what I could ask or dream. Overflowing. An increase. Too much to count. Bountifully. How does David go from a cry of anguish that he has been forgotten by the Lord and worried that it would be that way from now to the end of time, eternity? How does he go from that confession to I will sing to the Lord freshly motivated by the realization that His grace toward me is overflowing. The psalm is dramatic in its brevity and in its contrast. I think key to understanding the answer to how and to follow David's process and perhaps to model his thinking and his prayers in our own life is the title of this message and the only request, really the only direct request of this prayer psalm. And it occurs in verse 3. Again, we read, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Light up my eyes, the central phrase and request of this psalm. That is to say, if David has this prayer answered, and it happened in six short verses, as I say, if David's eyes can be lit up with truth, with the revelation of God, then the deepest anguish of the heart can be settled in a moment, in an instant, in one brief prayer, in one consoling, revelatory thought, in one pause, reflection, a heavenward glance, a prayer, a crying out. If our eyes can be lit up, if we know what that means and it takes place in our heart, we can move from this anguish, will you forget me forever, to singing songs motivated by the knowledge that God has dealt bountifully with us in as short a time as David. Light up my eyes. There's three things, three points I'd like to center this message around. Number one will be the symptoms of spiritual blindness. And David highlights, demonstrates these in his own soul in the beginning two verses. The second two verses, verses 3 and 4, would be point number two, consequences of spiritual blindness. We move from seeing the symptoms of a closed eye or eyes that are dim, spiritual eyes that aren't seen correctly. They aren't lit up by the Word. Symptoms of that to consequences. If we remain in a state of blindness spiritually, what does that mean for our souls? What evidence of that should we take seriously as we explore our heart search ourselves to see if we're in a dangerous place. And then finally, point number three, spiritual sight restored. Some aspects that we can look to and look for in our heart confession and our soul's reflection to know that our spiritual eyesight is now healthy, lit, restored, sound. I love how David writes and pens these beautiful pieces of music. I wish that I had the chords in front of me. I wish that God's Word had been recorded in CD format, MP3, something, so that you could appreciate the emotion in David's music, his melodies, his voice, his vocal tones, as these were not just words on a page, not just poetry, but music that was lifted up before the Lord. 
In your Bible, you may have the title like mine listed, To the Choir Master, A Psalm of David. Another worship song like the ones we sang today for a similar purpose, to quicken the hearts of God's people in a worship service in antiquity in the Old Testament to remind them of the faithfulness of their God in admission of their own blindness, but in understanding if their heart and soul could be bared before the miraculous moving of God's Holy Spirit, their eye could be lit and they could close the song on a glorious crescendo and emotional refrain that would be freshly motivated to sing from the depths of their soul and I think from the top of their lungs for the bountiful blessings, the amazing grace of our God. We don't have that CD recording that we can plug in and play, but our imagination could perhaps fill in a few of the gaps. And I'd like to highlight a few poetic devices as well. And in this psalm, that gives us a hint of some of the kind of more subtle language that communicates the heart of David as we read here. And the first is this kind of descending order. David opens with this shocking, as I say, traumatic, troubling sense of urgency. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Thus modeling the heart that honestly goes before the Lord and pours out the depths of our soul. Wicked, righteous, happy, anguished, faithless, faithful, whatever is written on our soul, whatever is reflected there, we ought to go to God and make it our first duty to confess before Him. Isn't this the model of the origin of our relationship with the Lord anyway? What must a man do to be saved? Confess that he is a sinner and that Christ is his only hope. Simply admit those things. Lay them out before the Lord. Say, here is me inside out to the best of my knowledge, perception, and ability. And if there's deception remaining, whereas there's areas of my life that I'm still blind to, I invite you to search me now that the inside out is exposed as I've done willfully, knowing that you see it anyway. Do a job within me such that I don't leave this prayer time without experiencing renewed life, a lightening of the eyes, an enlightenment of the soul, a quickening of my step, an assorting of my emotions, what I ought to feel with what is actually true. When we come to Christ in salvation, and we have that altered experience, those of us in different places and times in our lives felt that anguish of soul. We were at the end of our rope and in our sin likely cried out, Will you forget me forever if you just intervene? I promise I'll give you permission to run my life. I have proven assuredly to this point that I am a failure at running my own life. It's not that David truly believes God has forgotten him forever in his deepest soul, but it's his confession of what he's tempted to act on, how he's tempted to feel. It's an emotional confession. Lord, do not forget me forever. But as I mentioned, he moves from that to saying, how long will you hide your face from me? Okay, Lord, in my anguish, perhaps I overreacted. I know that you have not forgotten me forever. It's impossible for you to do so. After all, we know from the rest of Scripture, even a sparrow that's sold for a mere pocket change is not forgotten when a single one falls from the sky. But Lord, I want to move to ask that you would not hide your face from me. Do you see, though, David is still in anguish and he's still crying out out of an emotional feeling of loss, pain, anguish, fear, perhaps anxiety, that he is now moved from forgetfulness to, okay, you're just hiding your face. Maybe it's just around the bend. Could you please step out into the open? Could you please light my eyes? And then he recalibrates his confession one more time. He says in chapter, verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul? I've listened to myself and my emotions more than I've sought your hidden face. Perhaps it's because I've trusted too much in my own means and myself that I haven't sought you. 
and found you as you have promised. And then finally he says, and have sorrow in my heart all the day. And the final, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Okay, you have not forgotten me. I know you're there. In fact, I'm starting to feel your presence now. Oh, forgive me for taking more comfort in my soul, for seeking my own ends and hope in myself. Oh, forgive and alleviate my sorrow. And then finally, just take my enemy that is distracted, blinded, confused me away, please. So as David brings his heart cry before the Lord, you can see that the order of his confession is starting to correct itself. That the perspective of crying out to the Lord in his presence is healing his state of mind. Number one prescription for mental health in the believer is to take that anguish, admitted anguish, instability, poverty of soul, inability to balance our own affairs, to see with enough discernment and perception and judgment to know what to do right now instead of throwing up our hands in anxiety and running from any possible hope for change to other things like our own counsel, the counsel of worldly wisdom. Go first. Go primarily to the throne room of God and see if his prescription for the health of your soul isn't far superior to anything the world might have to offer. Symptoms of spiritual blindness. First of all, in our spiritual blindness, as David evidences here, it is our tendency to ask short-sighted questions. Short-sighted, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? This denies God's omniscience on its face, but also admits our tendency to forget that nothing is hidden from God's sight. Least of all, his children. Least of all, those that are called out as David was and anointed for the purposes of his glory. To evidence in his willful obedience, a picture of who our King Jesus Christ was, part of David's calling, the Lord would certainly never forget him. In our symptom, or symptomatic of our spiritual blindness, in our spiritual blindness, sometimes we ask short-sighted questions. A few other examples might rush into your mind as you think about your own anguish when you're feeling despairing and you're having a a bad day and a horrible week and a bad season in life and a deep trial and despair that seems indefinite. You can't see the light and you can't see the next mountain because the valley is so deep. And here you are and you ask, Lord, if you are good, how could you allow me to do such a thing? How did a holy God endure such evil around me? Asking short-sighted questions. Forgetting that the glory of God is magnified when he could use even those things that men meant for sin to his glory's advantage. Forgetting that God is superior and inscrutable, unsearchable in his wisdom, according to his promises, that our God is so sovereign, great, and powerful, and wise that he can take those things that the enemy meant to destroy his kingdom and use them as foundation stones to evidence his power. These questions are short-sighted, but it's right to confess them. Lord, why do the righteous suffer? Remember the short-sighted questions that came from Job and his great anguish and trial? Oh, Lord, what have I done to deserve this? Another short-sighted question, the answer is everything. Sin, sinner, the answer is you have done everything to deserve hell. This is not hell. Don't cry out in anguish as if it is. Admit it as sin, but then thank the Lord. This is the closest to hell. If you are a believer, you will ever experience, that is, pain, difficulty, despair in this life. Short-sighted questions. All of these begin to melt away as we confess them for what they are us and our spiritual blindness, needing to have our eyes lit up. And if we go to prayer and start talking to God, the sovereign creator of the universe, the one who has ordained and spoken this world into existence, whose perfect knowledge and salvation and wisdom is evidence in his glorious redemptive plan that was conceived in his heart before creation itself was spoken into being and took fruition according to all his prophecies in the man Jesus Christ and remains today 
treasured in the hearts of believers and will be carried on to the end and celebrated for all eternity around the throne of the Lamb who is slain, this, our God, as we talk to Him, will suddenly be the context which wipes away short-sighted questions. We will begin to have our confession, attitudes, and heart mirror the sovereignty of God, His faithfulness, His unsearchable wisdom, and we will find a change in our confession. And we will find some of our questions, the short-sighted ones, perhaps replaced with the proper ones. In light of David's situation, which we can all relate to, a period of anguish, indecision, uncertainty, trial, pain in his life, maybe the real question would be, how long do I need to endure this? In other words, when you answer my prayer, I want to have already learned the lesson. Think about the ten lepers whom Jesus healed. Perhaps if the nine who did not return had endured with their leprosy a little longer, they would have remembered their Lord and their gratitude rather than the plans they had ahead of time to what they wanted to accomplish, go here and go there and do everything, without acknowledging the glory of God, the coming Messiah, who had just resurrected their body and asked him, what must I do for my soul to be saved? If one more year of leprosy would have given them the opportunity of perspective to thank and praise and dedicate their self and their future to the service of Jesus Christ upon that healing, then the answer to how long would have been as long as you need to know that I am your savior, your healer, your provider, and even as I hold your health in my hands, I hold your eternal future. A short-sighted question replaced with a good one. What would you have me learn? We mentioned that. A second or third question, perhaps as opposed to the short-sighted ones that we tend to rush to, would be how will you answer this prayer? David, if you want to record one of his prayer requests and godly desires, you could go back and study 2 Samuel 7, verse 4 through 11. David had a better house than the Lord. He had built with donated cedar from Hiram, king of Tyre. Similar to Solomon, he had gotten this beautiful wood and building materials and had a great home. He had a great house when he finally achieved peace in Jerusalem and, and achieved peace in Israel, at least uh, in limited measure. But he had anguish in his heart that he would have a better home than the Lord. The presence of the Lord at that time still resided in temporary place that would move like the tabernacle, and the Lord didn't have a temple at that time. David had a godly desire, far be it from me, to be comfortable in a home that is better than the Lord's. Solomon actually built a house that was bigger and more impressive than God's. David's heart was not like that. David had a heart after the Lord's own, and he had a dream of being an architect, an architect that would build a house worthy of God's glory. He never saw that prayer answered in his own life. But God did answer that desire and prayer through his son. Sometimes you and I are so short-sighted in our questions that we think the dreams that God has given us can only be fulfilled when we have the ability and in our own lifetime. We don't see that God might use us as a beautiful single piece in a more glorious overarching picture. And perhaps that dream that God has given you will be fulfilled through you faithfully nurturing and admonishing your child, and that child might carry forward a dream that God has given to you. David could have died depressed that he was never able to build the Lord a temple, or he could have died with his eyes lit, knowing that his son would, and for God's glory, that was answered prayer enough. How will you answer my prayer, Lord? I know I have short-sighted ideas, but light up my eyes, let me know, how profoundly, deeply, and above what I could think or imagine that you might answer these very things that are on my heart. Symptoms of spiritual blindness. Number one, we ask short-sighted questions. Number two, we seek answers in the wrong places. David says, and again, Psalm 13, 1 and 2, listen to the places where he may be tempted to search or has searched and is now confessing as wrong areas of counsel. How long, O Lord, will you, forget, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? 
How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David has listened to the circumstances. He's seen that his enemy perhaps is stronger than him. And the odds don't bode well for his future. More than that, he has taken counsel in his own soul and found that his ideas have come up short. Perhaps this prayer was a little long time in coming. Perhaps it wouldn't have opened with such anguish if he had gone to the Lord before he had sought counsel in his own soul and been a demonstrable failure according to his best ideas that he could come up with. But you and I know what this is like. A lot of times we'll exhaust every apparent possibility that we can think of before we cry out to the Lord for divine intervention. And then with a little bit of shame and embarrassment, we go before the Lord and say, I know this is backwards, but I'm confessing to you I've sought answers in the wrong places. Please let me learn from this experience to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, and that in that process trust that all these things will be added unto me. The Lord will light up your eyes and give you that assurance, and don't be surprised when you make that prayer at the end, you find yourself singing, as it were, for the bountiful grace of God, because He has dealt bountifully with you. You need only think of your glorious salvation to be reminded of that fact if we never had any subsequent blessing to praise Him for. But Lord knows we do. Seeking answers in the wrong places. A lot of times we might be experiencing the frailty of self, but we project that on to God and think it's His frailty. Notice David begins thinking, is God's arm perhaps too short to save or... Has he forgotten me? And then at the end of just two short verses, you can sense that the tables begin to turn in his mind instead of questioning whether God is frail to save or strong to intervene. He sees the frailty of self. He sees that it is futile to take counsel in your own soul, even as a place to start, and especially because it's an affront to God's wisdom to to consult yourself, your experience, your knowledge, your ideas, and even the counsel of others outside of scriptural principle as priority over the counsel of God. Are we experiencing the frailty of God in our trial? Or are we reaping the consequences of frailty of self? These are symptoms of spiritual blindness, seeking answers in wrong places. In doubtful circumstances, we need to find refuge in faith. And if you wanted to know what the essence of this phrase, light up my eyes, might be, especially in light of New Testament revelation, perhaps David is simply praying for stronger faith. Give me faith. As we know in the New Testament that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We're commanded to walk by faith and not by sight. So when our spiritual eyes are lit up, our faith is increasing, and we're taking firm steps on a pathway lit by the Holy Spirit of God, a step of faith after the next step of faith. In doubtful circumstances, we are to find refuge in faith. Instead of the other way around, showing doubtful faith by taking refuge in circumstances. Waiting till we have joy and peace to where everything looks safe betrays a lack of faith. I'll have a strong faith, Lord, when I have some kind of proof that you are going to intervene and give me answers to my prayer. The Lord says, look to creation around you. If that's not proof enough of my power, you will never believe. Now confess your doubt and unbelief as sin and take heart on the testimony of my faithfulness to generations previously and your own experience and know that strong faith finds refuge in my faithfulness even though circumstances look uncertain. Verses weak in faith, and the immature and the impetuous man who shows a doubtful heart of unbelief by deferring his joy and peace until his circumstances are sure. These are all symptoms of spiritual blindness. These are all symptoms, if you can relate to them, on principle in any way that would instruct you in how you should pray. Pray simply this, Lord, light up my eyes. Final symptom of spiritual blindness Betraying emotional vulnerability. We mentioned we're prone in our spiritual blindness to ask short-sighted questions, the wrong questions. 
We're prone to seek answers in wrong places. We're also prone to be emotionally vulnerable. We're impressionable under these circumstances. We're easily swayed by things other than the word, the voice, and the testimony of God, which is the only infallible word. Why would we ever trust a fallible word? Why would we ever trust a loud voice, however impressive it may be to our human ears, that denies something of the essence of God's word? It's because in our spiritual blindness, we are emotionally vulnerable. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? I admit, Lord, that I am in a weak and desperate position. I'm emotionally vulnerable. I could be exploited in this condition by the enemy right now. That's why I'm finding my refuge in prayer. I recognize the danger should I remain here. Don't let me be gullible to the wiles of the enemy in this situation. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long will I believe his voice and the doom and the things he holds over my head more than I believe in the deliverance, the salvation, the faithfulness, and the bountiful dealings of my God? These are symptoms of spiritual blindness. Number two, we'll discover in here a few examples of consequences of spiritual blindness. Before we go there, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to a corresponding passage in Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah 8, this is the prophet speaking a concept that has to do with David's circumstances and plagued the children of Israel and plagues anyone in a spiritually weak state. It's stated so beautifully in Isaiah 8. It has, as I say, national implications for this people group Israel in their society today. It has implications for the church And it has implications for us individually. What are the consequences of remaining spiritually blind? How seriously should we take the situation if we find ourselves with spiritual blindness and we see symptoms that we need that betray a heart of emotional vulnerability and these other things that point that should point us towards David's kind of prayer. It says in Isaiah 8 verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, verse 12, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Notice the remedy in verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. Two highlightable words. Testimony and teaching. If you want to avoid the trap, of conspiracies that react out of fear and spiritual blindness. Bind these two things on your heart, God's testimony and His teaching. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in Him. Notice the circumstance emotionally is identical to the one David was in. People found themselves in a place where it felt as though God were hiding His face from them. What should you do in that situation? You should bind yourself to the testimony of God and his teaching. And this is what Israel had failed to do to the detriment and judgment of themselves. Verse 18, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and and, uh, portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? And you notice here, again, that people are prone to seek answers in the wrong places. They're going to mediums, necromancers, false prophets, worldly wisdom would equate to our society today, rather than inquiring of their God and binding their confidence to his testimony and his teaching, namely his word. And he says as much again here, Uh, In verse 19, And when they say to you, inquire of the medians and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not my people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on the behalf of the living? 
Verse 20, to the teaching and the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. It's poetic language. If I may consider this first phrase, to the teaching and to the testimony, like a call to arms for war, to arms, to the bulwarks. If you find yourself in a state of spiritual blindness with enemies surrounding all about, where should you want, run? Where, what should your spiritual reaction be? What should be the trigger in your heart? What should be the reflex in your mind to the teaching and to the testimony? But if you don't, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no morning. They have, that is, no rays of sun breaking on the horizon. They have no spiritual light. They have no eyesight. Their eyes are not lifted up. In the situation that David evidences so well in his poetry and the prophet Isaiah speaks so clearly to on principle, the idea is this. In your darkest hour, tie yourself to the testimony and the teaching of our God. The testimony of his faithfulness to his children Israel was rehearsed time and again by the prophets, by the sages who told the parents, this is what you teach your children and this is what you rehearse and remember when the hour is dark, the days are dim, and your fear is heightened. Remember how I was with my people, and by the power of my hand, they crossed the Red Sea. Remember how I was present with them as a cloud by day and a fire by night. Remember as, how I spoke to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. God is referred to in Scripture constantly as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because as we hear the name of God, it should be associated immediately to his testimony of faithfulness, not just to us, not just in our experience, but every believer. From the early ones that were called to the future ones that will be. Tie yourself to the testimony and to the teaching of God in the hour of your spiritual, emotional, vulnerable darkness. If we do not, the consequences are three. Death, defeat, and doom. David says these clearly in verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes. And then notice these three situations that follow lest. In other words, if you don't lift up my eyes, Lord, and if my spiritual eyesight isn't open, if my faith is not built, the following three will be consequences of my spiritual blindness. First, lest I sleep the sleep of death. That's worst case scenario. But notice again in the poetry, he's kind of scaling it down again. He says in verse 4, Lest, again, my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. So there's death. Secondly, defeat. And then notice finally in verse 4, Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. That's doom. It's the threat of surrounding armies that spells danger, doom, and fear for the future. But you see David recalibrating his heart as he moves from, okay, if you do not do this, Lord, I am as good as dead. Okay, I'm as good as defeated. Okay, I am doomed. Okay, I remember your teaching. I remember your testimony. And this brings us to the final point of this message. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Between point number two and point number three, we need to realize in Scripture how dangerous it is to remain in that place. How dangerous it is to seek, in our short-sighted thinking, answers in the wrong places. Isaiah highlighted that danger on principle when he said, if you don't cling to my teaching, if you don't cling to God's testimony... You'll be crushed and the truth will become a stumbling block and a destructive force of judgment for you. However, if you do cling to it, it will be your salvation. Now, there's a narrative section in Scripture of the king that preceded David who did not take heart to heart this principle. Do you remember when the chips were down with Saul, what he resorted to? 1 Samuel 28, 1-7, we won't turn there. You could mark that text down and explore this narrative on your own time. Saul was experiencing chaos in the kingdom. 
There was fear all around, and Samuel, the one lone in many ways, spiritual voice, uncompromising messenger of God in the land, had passed away. Saul, in this state, symptoms of spiritual blindness were everywhere, including his own heart, and he was tempted and succumbed to seeking answers in the wrong places. And just like Isaiah said, he sought it with the necromancers and the mediums, the best that the world had to offer, the best power he knew to consult to know what was going to happen in the future. It is emotionally dangerous beyond estimation to remain in this place of spiritual blindness. More than that, it is spiritually detrimental to your eternal future should you remain in a place of vulnerability that does not hang on to God's promises when the threat is all around you. You could, in worst case scenario, prove yourself not to be a believer of our sovereign God whose promises are secure in the first place. We may succumb to a certain lie that Satan might give in this situation, something that says, obviously, to get ahead in life and to ensure my position, to buy insurance for my hope for the future, to hedge my bets, as it were, obviously it requires strategic alliances in this life, all right? You've got to come to grips with fundamental realities. And it's this kind of attitude where the believer begins to seek answers in wrong places and begins to make alliances with necromancers and mediums. Don't get hung up on some like, oh, witchcraft, I would never do such a thing. I wouldn't go see some gypsy with tarot cards if I didn't know what decision to make tomorrow. But here's the real question. What do we see? What do we rely on? Where is the source of our strength? Where does our peace of mind lie? If it's not in the testimony, if it's not in the truth of Scripture, if it's not in the teaching of our God, then it is no less wicked, no less wicked than seeking the witch of Endor to find out what tomorrow holds. We might find ourselves buying the lies. Okay, yes, it's a fundamental reality to seek happiness, to need some kind of power, to align yourself with it, to have peace, to stand on truth, to have some hope and love and meaning and motivation in life. These are kind of the human longing, the soul's desires, the sort of intangible things that really make the world turn spiritually. But if we attach any happiness to anything less than Christ, it is no less wicked than seeking a necromancer to tell us the future. Happiness does not stem from indulgence with the flesh. But this is what our world tells us today. So if we seek answers in the wrong places, we might be making compromises in our flesh for the sake of our own enjoyment and happiness. Power does not rest on tangible means. That is, he might does not make right and the, the biggest gun does not always win. The believer might give his life for a great cause and though he's a minority, he might be gloriously blessed in eternity with reward beyond compare. But a lot of times because we feel we don't have much leverage and power, we act less like a Christian and more like a politician. That's so prevalent today. More like a negotiator. More like a person who is seeking for a compromise and buying a little bit from the world and trying to have one foot in the Word as we seek power through tangible means. The world would tell us peace is realized through compromise, but such is not the case. Peace comes beyond our understanding as a work of the Holy Spirit alone in our life. That is true peace. Truth is never secondary to compromise either, or syncretism with the world's way of thinking. Hope is never found in our ability to manipulate the future by our own strength. Hope is found only in Christ's work and promises. Love is never our peers to grant us. Love is never the majorities to grant or to give. You see, we look for acceptance in our peer groups. We look to be accepted and affirmed by those around us and largely by culture. But love is not theirs to give. Love is only God's to give. Meaning is limited to my experience and threatened by death? I don't think so. Meaning is established by God's inarguable scriptures. Motivation is never to be rooted in fear. This is just a list of things, mediums, that we are tempted to consult these days as we find ourselves in David's shoes. 
Don't underestimate the danger of the consequences of spiritual blindness. They lead to doom, death, and defeat. Final point, spiritual sight restored. We talked about David evidences these symptoms of spiritual blindness and confesses that he has fallen prey to them in some way. He confesses consequences of spiritual blindness. He said if he would retain them, it would be death, defeat, and doom. If one of you wants to come up and grab my son, you could. (laughs) And finally, spiritual sight restored. Under this heading, there's three points. Steadfast love, salvation, and bountiful dealings. Three points. See, a little later there, Justice. Of spiritual sight restored. This is a section of David's closure and really resolves the prayer. It's the confessing and repentant element. Notice verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. There are three things that David knows are more trustworthy, steadfast, stronger promises, better track record, and more hope for the future, so far eclipsing what the world and other sources would tell him that it's like the moon passing over the sun in the eclipse, and instead of casting the shadow, it's incinerated in a moment by the power and heat of the superior light of our God. And that's just a picture in our mind, how this prayer moves our tendencies to resort to other things for peace and security, and instead of eclipsing God's or competing with Him, as we get our heart right before Him and trust in His teaching and testimony, they're burned up. They're removed from our heart and our confession. And the brevity and contrast of this psalm takes evidence and root in our heart as our mind is reordered and we realize, you know what? The steadfast love of God is far more trustworthy than any impressive lie I have ever heard. My heart shall rejoice. It will, it will place the seat of its joy in my salvation, what Jesus Christ has accomplished for me. And more than that, I will even apply my talents, my emotions, my goals moving forward in song by singing and raising to the Lord a superior song of worship for His bountiful dealings toward me, one that far eclipses and burns in the light of its heat the initial troubling confession, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I'd like to close this message by reminding you of Revelation 12. Revelation, the closing chapter, the book, you could think of it as the closing chapter of the entire canon, all of recorded scripture for us. It would make sense that God would leave us with a triumphal explanation point if He is the author and perfecter of our faith, if He is the sovereign governor, the providential hand that orients for His glory every detail of history, it would make sense that verses in Revelation would read with a superior, overwhelming sense of the power and majesty of our God revealed in such beautiful language as these words that Mark read earlier and I want to reread in Revelation 12, verses 9 through 12. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accused them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him. And notice the weapons of their warfare. They have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb. David said, salvation by the word of their testimony. Isaiah said as much. David said as much. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O death and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Don't be surprised because the devil knows his time is short. 
if his activity is heightened for a period of time in your own life, if the enemy senses that time is short because you are demonstrating by your testimony a superior faith, a lightning of the eyes, a love for Jesus Christ that he would wage a war against it, I only ask that you beseech the word of God in your hour of great need and cling tightly to its testimony and teaching and model the heart of David when he took that anguish of the hidden face of God or the feeling of being abandoned by him and it turned in just six short verses to a song of praise, rejoicing that his sovereign, gracious God had dealt so bountifully with him as to testify of his works and the knowledge of his word and his own experience, as to secure his salvation for David and the faith of the coming shed blood of the Messiah, but for us to even greater degree in some ways as we think back to the finished work of Jesus Christ, we have even more reason to take heart, to see the enemy vanquished as Revelation prophesies he is and finally will be, and then set our heart according to the promises of God's word and find our spiritual eyesight restored, that our eyes would light up by the truth of God's word and the consequent hope would far eclipse any remaining fear. Close your eyes in prayer, if you would, with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we long to be faithful before you. Lord, there is that innate desire in the heart of every believer, that childlike joy of pleasing his Heavenly Father, to run home to our King of Kings, our God, our Father, and to run into his loving arms and tell him, with light in our eyes and pride in our voice, what we did today, with the expectation that he would be proud of us. Lord, if we have anything worthy of that fire, Lord, when it comes that in the end would be precious to you, gold and silver and precious stones, and not the wood, the dross and the hay of our fear and failings and frailty, it will be because of the investment of the Spirit in us the same spirit that raised you from the dead, thus defeating death and thereby, and thereby declaring lordship over our fears. We who have been captive until released from captivity by Christ to the fear of death. No longer, Lord, we see in this moment of reflection and prayer now that you are the conquering Messiah, that you are the Lord of all, that you have instead defeated our final enemy and you have reckoned Satan and determined his future instead of he being able to determine ours. And you have consigned him to the doom and the destruction and the judgment of all of time. Whereas we, by the power of your shed blood, will rejoice for eternity. Let us be about that celebration even now as we still battle with our flesh. As a testimony of the superior spirit inside of your people, evidencing the true work of Jesus Christ as we move one step closer and our eyes, Lord, are lit a few shades brighter and the glorious hope is set before us, even as the hope was set before you that gave you grace to endure the cross, our dear Jesus. Bless us, Lord, with this kind of fruit we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.